Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and it's my privilege to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I wanna to welcome you. And if you're a returning viewer, let me welcome you back. For those of you who may be new to us, Israel Policy Forum works to educate policymakers, Jewish community leaders, and leaders of the next generation to be informed and effective in their support of U.S. efforts to advance a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict consistent with Israel's security. We've not had a Tuesday webinar for the past couple of weeks, but we're pleased to be back. If you've not already done so, please make sure not to miss any program announcement or updates by becoming an email subscriber. You can do this so by visiting our website at www.israelpolicyforum.org. On our website, you can also check out our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, our policy director, Michael Coplow's weekly column that comes out every Thursday, and information on how young professionals can get involved through our IPF ATID program. I also want to invite all of you to join us for two other programs this week. Tomorrow, Wednesday, October 21st at 1 p.m. Eastern, former Shinbet director Ami Ayalon will speak about his career and his analysis of Israel's security challenges and opportunities in a webinar being co-sponsored with the JCRC of Greater Boston. And then on Thursday, October 22nd at 11 a.m. Eastern, the JCC in Manhattan will feature a webinar with the UAE Ambassador to the United Nations, Lana Nusebe, in a special conversation with Israel Policy Forum's Policy Director, Michael Coplow. So if you want to register for these programs or get more information, please go to our website. To keep all of our work going, we rely on your generosity. To all of our supporters on this program, thank you so much. If you view, and for those of you who view Israel Policy Forum as a vital resource, which I hope means everybody, and want to help to ensure the success of our initiatives in the year ahead, if you've not already done so, I encourage you to make a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Now on to today's program. Israeli politics is once again in turmoil. With street protests going on for months, ultimatums from the blue-white faction to Likud threatening the governing coalition, polling data showing a surge by Naftali Bennett's right-wing Yamina party, Netanyahu soon to stand in court as a defendant, and amidst all of this, talk of new elections. We want to unpack these many developments and much more with our returning guest and good friend, Neri Zilber. Neri is a journalist and analyst on international politics and culture, focusing primarily on the Middle East, and is an adjunct fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He's a regular contributor to the Daily Beast, Foreign Policy, Politico, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Guardian, The Atlantic, New Republic, Foreign Affairs, and Vox, among other outlets. With that, Neri, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, my pleasure, Susie. Thank you for that uh, kind introduction. It's good to be back with uh, IPF. We welcome you back. So, as you know too well, Israel underwent new lockdown procedures around Rosh Hashanah, 
what was the situation with coronavirus in Israel back in September and how has it either improved or worsened since then? Right. I think uh, politics aside, although it plays into the politics, obviously, uh, COVID second wave hit Israel uh, quite hard, uh, really beginning in July and then into August and really into to September. Uh, by September, Israel saw almost the highest kind of per capita new infection rates in the world, uh, in the entire world. Uh, and so the government uh, reluctantly and belatedly had to uh, institute a new lockdown. Uh, Israel had had a six-week uh, nationwide lockdown in March and April during the first wave. But, uh, but the second one came, uh, as you said, right before the high holiday started. Uh, it went on for, for about four weeks. And only in recent days has it kind of come out uh, of the lockdown. Um, you know, if there were in September about 9,000 new cases per day, uh, Israel is now down to about 1,500. Uh, the kind of percent infection positive infection rate uh, has also dropped uh, a month ago it was about 15 percent of of all uh, testing cases. Now it's about three and a half percent, five percent. We've all become kind of uh, experts in uh, pandemics, but uh, but really those are kind of the broad strokes and the hard data. So ostensibly, uh, Israel, the lockdown worked and Israel is coming out of it, uh, let's say gradually. Uh, so a few days ago, the kindergartens were reopened. Uh, takeaway from restaurants were allowed again. Uh, the one kilometer uh, distance from one's home that was instituted uh, before the high holidays uh, also was lifted. Uh, but to the government's credit, they're at least talking the talk. And unlike last time in the spring, uh, they're promising a gradual reopening, a gradual reopening, and that they're going to leave two week intervals to test uh, how the infection rates are, are either going up or down. Uh, but But it looks positive with one big caveat, uh, which I'm sure our audience has heard about, is uh, the ultra-Orthodox community. Uh, so the ultra-Orthodox community here uh, is about 10 or 12 percent of the entire population, uh, but at the height of, uh, of the lockdown uh, in recent weeks, uh, they were making up about 40 percent, almost 50 percent of, of all new positive cases per day. Uh, that also has gone down. Uh, questions remain whether uh, those numbers are are legitimate, and we can get into the, uh, the reasons why if people are curious uh, later on. But uh, but even in the higher ed communities, uh, there seems to be some progress, uh, you know, all outward appearances. Uh, and so while even a few days ago, there were a few remaining, quote unquote, red cities with high infection rates still under uh, kind of closure regime, um, again, ostensible closure regime, uh, as of Today or earlier this evening, uh, there was only one neighborhood in Jerusalem, a Haredi neighborhood left uh, as a quote unquote red uh, town or city or neighborhood. So progress is being made. But the big question uh, in everybody's minds, and it even shows up in, in polling data um, recently uh, made public, that the public isn't entirely convinced that there won't be a third wave, that the mistakes of of the first wave coming out of the first wave uh, you know, will likely be repeated, uh, hopefully not. Uh, but people are, are kind of cautiously optimistic, uh, but quite pessimistic with regard to the overall um, condition of the country, both health-wise and economically, and then, as you mentioned, politically. Let me just ask a quick follow-up to that, because there was an article actually in yesterday's Washington Post about how this second lockdown is not going as well as the first one, that people feel less 
of a sense of we're all in this together. And frankly, they're fed up. And of course, we're seeing evidence of, of that on this side of the ocean as well, even though most places have not undergone such draconian measures as were imposed in Israel. Right. So for example, like the thousand meter restriction is being violated and all kinds of workarounds. Um, how do you see that playing out in terms of getting a handle on this? Right. I think, uh, you know, in terms of the draconian measures instituted and, and really enforced, uh, it's nothing like the first lockdown. Uh, the first lockdown, really, there was a curfew, you know, nationwide curfew for the first time since the British mandate. Uh, the second lockdown was, uh, was a bit more uh, easygoing, both in terms of uh, how the public responded and the public's buy-in, uh, as well as the enforcement by the police and, and the authorities. Uh, you know, you're right. As you mentioned, the public trust has plummeted, uh, I think, over 60 percent, according to a poll that came out uh, yesterday, uh, thinks that the government is making decisions vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic for political reasons. And so if people think that uh, the decisions coming up from up high are, are, are just based on pure politics, then the buy-in will be, will be a lot less uh, than, than otherwise. And I think, we, you know, we've seen that in, in other countries as well. Uh, but having said all that, it, you know, if you're just basing on the numbers and the lockdown was effective, uh, we should mention that Israel was the was the first and to date the only uh, kind of Western developed nation to actually go for a nationwide uh, lockdown due to the second wave. So, uh, you know, unlike maybe countries in Europe right now that are seeing the, the uptick in infection rates, uh, Israel and the Netanyahu government really uh, kind of, as I say here, turned, you know, turned off the light. They turned off the light switch. Uh, and so, you know, while people may have not obeyed it as stringently as the first wave, uh, you know, everything was, was essentially closed. And in theory, there was this uh, one kilometer limit. They had checkpoints on the highways uh, that did have an impact and the numbers are going down. But again, um, you know, relative to where Israel was coming out of the first wave in May, where there was maybe two dozen cases a day, uh, you're still at 1500, uh, which is for Israel relatively high. And so if you start, this is the fear. If you start reopening too quickly and you already see kind of pressure from various interest groups in the public, uh, you know, quicker reopening, uh, if they actually succumb to that, that, to that pressure, then uh, very quickly Israel will find itself uh, where it was uh, in July and August and then into September. Speaking of September, um, during that month, we also witnessed some of the largest protests against Benjamin Netanyahu since demonstrations, since demonstrations began after the March Knesset elections, with as many as 20,000 people outside the prime minister's residence in August. Can you talk a little bit, Neri, about how the lockdown has impacted the protests and also sort of this, this phenomenon of mushrooming protests when large in-person gatherings were banned, although I got a message from a friend of mine who lives in Jerusalem, Motzei Shabbat, with, who was at the demonstration outside of Balfour, and she said there were maybe 10,000 people. That was Saturday night. But in any event, can you talk about these protests, which are ongoing? Um, can you give us a sense what the numbers, what the estimates are, if you take the whole country into account in terms of how many people are regularly protesting? And what is the what is the impact on the lockdown of the lockdown on the protests? What what's the potential impact on Bibi's continued tenure of these ongoing protests? Right. Um, so I'll start by saying that uh, demonstrations 
uh, impressively, I should say, have been going on now for a few months. Um, and if we remember, uh, you know, the anti-Netanyahu protests are, aren't all that new, uh, but they've grown. They've grown in size and geographic scope. Um, you know, if we think back to, to midsummer, the real impetus, and this is an important point, the real impetus for the growth of these demonstrations came when the anti-Netanyahu protesters joined with the uh, economic relief protesters. Uh, and this is uh, not a minor point. So small business owners, uh, restaurateurs, uh, independent contractors uh, really joined in because, uh, because they're hurting. Uh, they were hurting, they, they are still hurting, especially after the second lockdown. So you saw the spike in, in midsummer, um, and then you saw the protest movement shift to Jerusalem uh, outside the, the official prime minister's residence. And, and you said uh, 10,000, 20,000, 25,000 uh, estimates vary, but, but impressive uh, show of force for the anti-Netanyahu crowd, especially uh, in the midst of a pandemic. And especially I would say in Jerusalem, which is not, uh, shall we say, the natural habitat for, uh, for the anti-Netanyahu demographic in Israel. Now, what happened uh, in September when the second lockdown was announced was that Netanyahu tried to essentially ban all demonstrations uh, and basically to curtail them to a one kilometer distance from one's home. Uh, that met with a lot of, um, let's say, public and media outcry. Uh, there were allegations that he was trying to essentially ban the protest movement against him and against his government. Uh, but it, it, it backfired geographically in the sense that, as you mentioned, it mushroomed. So they, they uh, relinquished Jerusalem, but then they uh, reestablished themselves in Tel Aviv. Uh, I was at a demonstration not this past weekend, but the weekend before. Uh, it was the last Saturday of the lockdown, and uh, there were tens of thousands of people marching all around uh, Tel Aviv. Uh, quite impressive, especially since the police were trying to, to kind of rein them in. Um, so you saw that in Tel Aviv, but then uh, almost every Saturday, definitely every Thursday, even sometimes three times a week during, during the lockdown, you saw all across the country. And according to uh, the, the groups that are demonstrating, there were over 1,000 different locations all around Israel that saw an anti-Netanyahu demonstration. So we're talking uh, highway junctions, uh, town squares, and just anecdotally, you know, by the end of the lockdown, uh, demonstrations that had maybe 20 people or 30 people uh, previously had 100 people, 200 people. So if you take that all together, combined with Tel Aviv, uh, at the height of it, uh, as I said, a week and a half ago, you might have had maybe 100,000 people all across Israel demonstrating against Netanyahu, 150,000. Uh, but again, it's difficult to, to get a proper estimate because it's, it's spread out all over the country. Uh, to Netanyahu's credit, the, they uh, did not uh, argue against renewing the restrictions against the demonstrations. And so uh, they, they went back to Jerusalem, they went back to the prime minister's residence this past Saturday. Uh, I think about 10,000, 15,000 people uh, showed up. And so that restriction has been lifted and people are free to, uh, to demonstrate. Uh, you know, to speak to your last point, is it, you know, I don't think it's gonna be decisive in terms of toppling Netanyahu, but it's, it's a major popular expression of discontent. Uh, discontent, not only from the regular crowd, uh, more kind of left-wing Israelis uh, that, that have been demonstrating against Netanyahu for, for years, uh, but really middle Israel. Uh, people who wouldn't necessarily go out and protest, 
but they are going out to uh, to the highways and junctions and, and kind of expressing their disdain um, and their anger uh, at the current government. So let's turn to the prospect of new elections. Uh, the past few months have seen a dramatic rise for Naftali Bennett's right-wing Yamina party, which currently holds five seats in the Knesset, but is, hold, is polling as high as 24, according to a Channel 13 report from over the weekend. Meanwhile, many polls show Netanyahu's Likud slipping, and while the prime minister's party is still ahead of Yamina, the gap is shrinking. What accounts for Bennett's rise? Well, in, in a word, uh, Corona. Uh, the COVID pandemic has really uh, led to the rise of, of Nafali Bennett. Um, you know, the real reason is because he's viewed uh, as a kind of responsible and objective politician in the midst of the sea of politicians uh, in the Knesset and in the government uh, who, uh, you know, for various reasons, whether political interests or economic interests, um, have not taken the pandemic seriously. Uh, we should remember that back in March, uh, Naftali Bennett was defense minister um, and he was frozen out uh, of any kind of operative role or decision-making with regard to the pandemic by Netanyahu, uh, arguably for, for political reasons. Uh, Netanyahu did not want to, uh, to share the great success that was the, the first wave and the first lockdown uh, with anybody but himself and health ministry officials. Uh, and so Bennett was frozen out, and then obviously he was not uh, he was not incorporated into the to the new government that was seated in May. So he was uh, Netanyahu ostensibly exiled into opposition, and in opposition, Netanyahu, uh, Bennett continued uh, pounding on the on the Corona issue. Uh, now, uh, you know, very much more uh, more actively directing his his anger and his criticism towards Netanyahu himself, which is new. Uh, and concurrent with that, you've seen him rise in the polls uh, because he was viewed as somebody who offered both uh, kind of clear-cut and objective uh, advice and guidelines to the public, oftentimes via social media and Facebook live uh, events. And then he was also viewed as somebody who, who actually uh, was demanding but didn't get, but was very prescient in demanding uh, certain measures be taken, like, for instance, uh, establishing a real and, and massive uh, testing capacity, uh, which was late in coming to Israel, like a real contact tracing um, infrastructure, which again was late in coming, uh, like handing a lot of the operative authorities uh, on the ground to the army, which was late in coming. All that happened later in the summer when it became clear that a second wave was was looming. Uh, but Netanyahu was viewed as uh, as kind of um, uh, you know we're in the Holy Land, so I don't want to say a prophet. Uh, but he was due to somebody that, that was taking it seriously, that wasn't uh, trying to play politics with, with a very serious, serious uh, health issue. And the public has rewarded him, uh, at least according to the polls, with, with their trust and the support. Uh, you know, like you said, he, he, he has five seats in the Knesset currently. He's polling above 20, which is unheard of for, for Naftali Bennett and his party. Uh, you see a lot of um, former Netanyahu supporters, uh, people kind of on the center right gravitating towards him as as an alternative to Netanyahu and the Likud. Uh, you know, they might not go to the left wing or center left parties, but for them, Netanyahu has um, uh, has kind of delivered, at least from opposition, on what a politician should be doing uh, in times of crisis. 
So the same Channel 13 report I referenced before showed a prospective 61 seat government, that's a bare majority as you know, uh, consisting of Bennett's Yamina, Yair Lapid's Yesh Atid, Benny Gantz's Kahol Lavan, and Avigdor Lieberman's Israel Beitenu. What do you think of such projections? Well, uh, through, uh, through our experience, I think we should take polls uh, with a massive grain of salt, uh, both here and in other countries. But I think, you know, look, what they say about polls is true. They, they, they might not be 100% accurate for election day, but they do point to trends. They do point to political trends. And Bennett rising is, I believe, a real trend. Uh, will he be able to maintain it? Uh, come election day, that's a huge question. Uh, Netanyahu has uh, uh, long-standing experience stealing votes from him um, in prior elections, uh, kind of uh, urging the right-wingers to come home to the Likud and not mess around with uh, with the smaller right-wing parties. Uh, and also, a lot of his votes ostensibly come from the center, maybe even former blue and white voters who, who are disillusioned with uh, Benny Gantz's party. Uh, and so when push comes to shove, uh, they might return back to the center left because uh, Naftali Bennett, uh, as we know, is, is, is fairly right wing. Uh, and so, you know, they might be telling pollsters right now that uh, they like Bennett because of, of the pandemic. Uh, will they actually pull the trigger and, and vote for, you know, a pro-settler party uh, come election day? That's also an open question to my mind. Uh, these are kind of floating, floating uh, middle votes uh, that, that are still up for grabs, uh, given blue and white. Uh, demise in the poll. Um, I should say that the Channel 13 poll was interesting in terms of a you know future coalition prospects uh, without the Haredis, uh, without Likud, and without the the Joint Arab List. Uh, but on the same night, Channel 12 had a slightly different poll that put those kind of four center left, center right politicians: Lieberman, Lapid, Gantz, and Bennett uh, below 60. So it's still you know still unclear whether they whether they will be able to make it over the hump and, and you know, after an election, have the numbers work out in their favor. Uh, but it's a concern uh, for Netanyahu, and he has to take it seriously. Uh, the prospect of an alternative coalition rising uh, without the Likud um, and without Arab support, which has been uh, kind of a, a problem for certain parties, even on the center left uh, in the past in terms of coalition support and forming a government. Uh, so it's a concern for Netanyahu. Um, and he has to take it seriously. Uh, you know, we can get into prospects for elections being called, uh, but that's kind of the political dynamic underlying it. The, the, the Netanyahu decreasing in the polls and Bennett rising in the polls. So Neri, you just mentioned that it's quite possible, you, you mentioned the Channel 12 poll, which comes out a little differently from the Channel 13 report, but even the Channel 13 report leaves very little room for error. Uh, right. you know, one, one seat less would make it a, make this would-be government a minority. So uh, in the past two elections, the Israeli Arab-led joint list that you mentioned supported Gantz against Netanyahu. How does the joint list feel about Bennett, who sits to the right of Gantz on Palestinian issues, especially after Gantz joined Netanyahu's government? Um, look, obviously there's no love lost uh, between the Arab political parties and Naftali Bennett and his Yamina faction, uh, you know, Yamina has to be taken at face value. They're, they're a pro-settler party uh, on many positions. They're to the right, even of Netanyahu and the Likud. Uh, and by the way, not only on in terms of settlements and, and um, uh, the Palestinian question, but, uh, but even in terms of, uh, you know, gay rights, uh, 
for certain uh, for certain politicians within within Bennett's faction. Um, you know, look, uh, what I tell people that uh, that have gotten in touch with me uh, over the past week or two, uh, slightly freaking out at the rise, as you said, of of Bennett. Um, you know, will we get rid of Netanyahu only to wind up with the Prime Minister Bennett? Uh, my response to them is, is twofold, or maybe even threefold. Number one, uh, we have to see if Bennett can maintain that level uh, of support publicly and translate it on election day. That's, as I said, an, uh, an open question uh, in terms of where he's where, the, where he's gathering his support at the moment. Uh, number two, it's it's not clear to me that even if a scenario like the Channel Channel 13 poll plays out where you have this this kind of uh, center right center left coalition rising without uh, the Likud, uh, whether Bennett would even govern alone. Uh, you can envision a scenario where Lapid and Bennett actually garner the same number of votes and enter into a rotation for the premiership themselves. Uh, and in that sense, the Bennett, quote unquote, Bennett government would be restrained in what it, it can and cannot do. Uh, and that type of government would likely focus on other things than say settlement construction or uh, you know or annexation of the West Bank, for instance. Uh, and then number three, I think, um, well, Bennett is is uh, an interesting politician. Uh, he has a long experience with uh, with Netanyahu, even personally. Uh, Bennett started his his life in politics as uh, Netanyahu's um, chief of staff. Uh, they fell out, but really, uh, Bennett started his political path with with uh, Netanyahu. Uh, he's been a minister in Netanyahu's government, but never really garnered all that much respect uh, from Netanyahu. Netanyahu always tried to to kind of uh, eliminate him politically, him and uh, Bennett's uh, running mate, Eilat Shaked. So uh, the real question in people's minds is, is whether Bennett uh, is going to make a move along with Lieberman and Lapid uh, and likely Gantz to, to essentially topple Netanyahu himself. Uh, that's still an open question. Uh, but more to the point, he he needs to um, um, he needs to show that uh, that he can stand up to Netanyahu, uh, and he still has to make that decision. I'm going to get to our audience questions soon, but I've got a couple more. Um, so, given the current polling conditions, don't seem ripe for Netanyahu to call elections. But with the evidence phase of his trial coming up in just a few months, and the prime ministerial rotation next year, where he's supposed to hand it off to Gans. Is there any way that Netanyahu can avoid this altogether, or do you think elections are inevitable? So this is the the key political question right now. Um, the budget is is the trigger that Netanyahu has looked at even uh, from the day that he signed the coalition agreement with Benny Gantz. Uh, so the government right now is a national unity government uh, between Likud and Blue and White. Uh, both Benny Gantz and Netanyahu were sworn in as prime ministers. Uh, so Netanyahu uh, is first in the prime minister rotation. Uh, and Benny Gantz ostensibly is supposed to rotate in uh, in November 2021. However, according to the agreement that they signed, uh, the one the one out clause that Netanyahu has uh, to not relinquish the premiership to Gantz is the budget, is non-passage of the budget. Uh, now, Israel almost went to an election in August. Uh, because of the non-passage of the budget, there was a budget deadline. Uh, eventually, a compromise was brokered, and they passed an extension uh, that gives them until late December to pass a budget. Now, what we're seeing now is, is Benny Gantz and Blue and White actually issuing an ultimatum to Netanyahu, pass a budget for 2021 
or we ourselves are going to dissolve the Knesset and, and force an election. Uh, and why are they doing this? Uh, purely based on Netanyahu's declining poll numbers. So they're essentially trying to leverage the poll numbers into forcing Netanyahu to pass a budget uh, and thereby ostensibly uh, locking in the rotation for next year. Um, if Netanyahu dissolves the government uh, for any reason other than the budget, then Benny Gantz automatically would rotate in as transition prime minister for three months before any election. Uh, that's a high price for Netanyahu uh, to have to pay uh, to kind of relinquish the premiership before an election to, uh, to Benny Gantz. So really, uh, it's decision time for Netanyahu. Uh, he has to decide whether uh, he wants to risk an election right now uh, in the midst of a uh, health crisis and an economic crisis and dropping poll numbers um, or, uh, or pass a budget. Uh, and, and in theory, allow Gantz to rotate in next November. I think, you know, I think as a fallback option, uh, passing a budget and avoiding election right now for Netanyahu isn't the worst isn't the worst option for him um, because it ensures that he's prime minister for another year. Uh, he is going to start his trial in January, uh, but he will still remain prime minister uh, when he goes to trial. That in and of itself has has an impact uh, both uh, publicly and politically. Uh, so so it's a really tough decision for Netanyahu because his, his initial uh, his initial impulse was to essentially form this government with Benny Gantz. Uh, not honor the agreement and go to an election uh, after he defeated Corona uh, after the first wave um, with these peace deals in the Middle East uh, on the agenda and then win win a majority. Uh, that, I don't believe, is in the cards anymore. As I understand, Gantz is also threatening Bibi if he doesn't pass the budget that Gantz will bring forward legislation that prevents a sitting prime minister who's uh, facing trial on is indicted and is actually facing trial or in trial, which he will be. I guess his hearings start in, as you said, in January. How that? So how real is that threat? And just very briefly, what what do you think are the issues that are holding up passage of a budget? Um, well, I'll talk about the second question first. Uh, it's purely political. Uh, you know, so when we when we say the word budget, when we think of the word budget, we think of uh, you know economic figures, very technical negotiations. Uh, it's purely political. Political. Uh, back in back in August, the Likud was arguing that they couldn't uh, they couldn't pass a budget for the rest of 2020 and 2021 because it was too soon and uh, it's impossible. Uh, now they're arguing in October that it's impossible to pass a budget for 2021. Uh, you know, they're they're very flexible in terms of the public. Uh, explanations that they give to not pass a budget, but it's uh, it's purely political to maintain, as I said, this out clause for Netanyahu uh, so that he doesn't have to relinquish the premiership to Gantz. Uh, in terms of the the first question, I think, um, well, I will say that uh, the the law they they like to threaten this law, uh, passing a, a law that would uh, that would disqualify. Uh, an indicted or uh, on-trial prime minister from continuing um, in power, the time to do that would have been in in March and April. Uh, and and Blue and White and Benny Gantz made the decision to uh, to enter into a coalition with Netanyahu at the time. So they themselves politically uh, made it okay for uh, an indicted uh, prime minister to remain in power, to run, uh, and to to form a government. Uh, the Supreme Court as well uh, didn't didn't quite disqualify it either. Uh, the attorney general didn't quite disqualify it either. And so once you've already allowed Netanyahu to run 
after an indictment at the end of last year. You've already allowed uh, an indicted prime minister to, uh, to form a government. You've already allowed an indicted prime minister to actually sit and be a prime minister. Uh, I, don't, I don't rate the chances of that happening as very high, uh, especially because it would lead to you know, a massive constitutional crisis. Um, and that uh, the attorney general and the court are very aware of that. They're very aware of, of public opinion. And I think they try to uh, to avoid a situation like that. So I just want to remind our audience, if you have a question, please type it in the Q&A box. I'll get to as many of them as I can. And we have some great questions. So I want to ask one more of my own and then start asking uh, audience questions. It's possible, Neri, that next year we could have a new American president and a new Israeli prime minister, or one of the incumbents perseveres and the other loses an election. So what do you think of the possible U.S.-Israel combinations, Biden-Bennett, Biden-Bibi, Trump-Bennett, I guess Trump-Bibi, which we already have now, but so that's not a new combination. Um, When you think about these various combinations, particularly if we get a new administration in the White House, what are the implications depending on who is prime minister this coming year? Right. I, you know, Israeli politics are uh, still in flux. We don't even know if we're going to have an election. So uh, I will say that, um, you know, as I said before, a, a Bennett premiership, I don't think he'd be ruling alone. I don't think he would ever be able to get to the numbers uh, that he would need in order to form a, a government himself. Uh, so I think he'd be restrained in terms of what he can do and, and via vis-a-vis that, uh, the relationship with, with Washington. Uh, you know, if it's Trump, Trump, Netanyahu, uh, you know, we'll probably see more of what we've seen over the past four years, uh, probably more so um, in terms of, of uh, the skewing of U.S. policy more towards Israel, let's say. Uh, we'll definitely see um, a lot more... Uh, peace deals, normalization deals between uh, Israel and various Middle Eastern states. Uh, Although I would also venture to say that even under a Biden administration, we'll see that process continue as well. Uh, The interesting question to my mind is what happens uh, if Biden actually wins, the Democrats uh, are in power, um, what a Biden administration's policy vis-a-vis Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict would actually look like. Um, And from my conversations with people in Washington, uh, you... You know, I don't think it'll be a second day issue for a Biden administration, uh, like we saw perhaps uh, at the beginning of Obama's first term. Uh, but you might see progressive voices on Capitol Hill, uh, as well as certain foreign policy aides um, that are that may be going into a Biden administration, uh, actually focus in on the on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Um, you know, that might be counterintuitive to some people. It's it's not a, a great winning issue uh, as we've known. Uh, in recent years and recent decades. Um, but I will venture to say that uh, a lot of progressive voices um, do care deeply about the Palestinian question, about the Palestinian uh, conflict, the ongoing occupation. Uh, and at the very least, you'll see a retilting of U.S. foreign policy uh, to make it a bit more balanced than what we've seen in recent years under Trump. Um, at the very least, reopening the PLO office in Washington, uh, reinstituting U.S. aid uh, to the Palestinians, uh, perhaps scrapping uh, Trump's deal of the century outline and, and maybe going back to uh, to older paradigms that are, let's say, more, more balanced uh, vis-a-vis the Palestinians. Um, 
you know, and some people say that in an extreme scenario, there will be uh, there will be payback uh, to pay uh, if Netanyahu is still in power uh, due to the closeness that he's um, that he's clearly evidenced uh, in recent years towards Trump and the Republicans. Uh, I don't have any inside information with regard to that, but it's at least in play. All right. Thank you, Neri. So I'm going to get to some audience questions. Um, Marta Gukowski asks, how will Israel's new construction boom in the West Bank affect the agreements with the UAE and Bahrain, and for that matter, with other European countries? And let me just add to Marta's question, how would a Prime Minister Bennett approach annexation, and how would that impact nascent relations with the UAE and further Gulf normalization? Um, you know, look, the settlements, uh, the recently announced uh, settlement construction, I know uh, Michael Kalplow uh, wrote an article about this. This is kind of like the, the end of season, end of Trump administration uh, uh, bonanza, uh, trying to kind of get it in under the wire. Uh, you know, it, it's a problem, but it's unfortunately nothing new. Uh, and so I don't personally view the Emiratis or other uh, Arab states, uh, I don't view the Europeans as, as making it a kind of uh, make or break issue um but this is always the 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 i don't want to say trade-off but it was always the kind of conflict uh with what the uae and bahrain actually chose to do which is that a lot of people were arguing that you uh that you engage with israel that you normalize relations and vis-a-vis that you'd have more leverage over israeli policy especially in the west bank and with regard to the palestinian question uh to my mind the the open question was always what leverage would they have once they've already given away the farm you know, you've already you've already normalized relations. You're signing trade deals like we saw today. Uh, that you're going to open an embassy. So, so the most you you may be able, you may be able to do uh, is recall an ambassador. Uh, you're not going to sever the peace agreement. And the best evidence we have for that is Jordan and Egypt, uh, that have gone through multiple crises, uh, primarily with regard to Israeli-Palestinian uh, flare-ups and escalations um, and settlement construction, and yet the peace treaties are still holding. Uh, the second question, remind me, the second half of that question. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, annex- oh, Bennett and annexation. Yes. Uh, look, uh, just briefly, um, again, not to belabor the point, I don't think Bennett will be ruling alone. Uh, it's not like it'll be a one-for-one uh, replacement of Netanyahu with Bennett, so we should kind of keep our, um, our uh, burgeoning hysteria uh, a bit lower. Uh, and also, Bennett... You know, as prime minister, and, and by the way, not just Bennett, also Yari Lapid or any other contenders, um, you know, they're, they're going to be novice prime ministers. And so they'll have a lot more, let's say, burning issues and coalition crises and, and diplomatic spats and even military escalations um, that they'll have to they'll have to handle. Uh, and, you know, Netanyahu has long experience with with those types of issues, uh, you know, some would say for good or bad, uh, but he's eminently experienced. Uh, for anybody who replaces him, it'll be uh, a completely new uh, new experience. And so, anything proactive like uh, like West Bank annexation, uh, I think, would would likely be out of the cards, at least in the media term. Stephen Winmuller asks: While the polling in Israel reflects a significant level of support for President Trump, in fact, I saw a poll yesterday that it's seventy percent of Israelis favor Trump. When you when you drill down to Jewish Israelis, it's 77 percent. It's the polar opposite of how American Jews feel, the polar exact opposite. So he's asking, polling reflects a significant level of support for President Trump. Are Israelis also preparing for a Biden presidency 
and what might that mean for U.S.-Israel relations? And let me just tack one more question onto that, Neri, which is this recent, the, the uh, activity in terms of approving new settlements, which seems to be really ramping up and not just within the major settlement blocks, but in very far-flung places like Israel and other places that would that are deep into the West Bank, it sort of gives one the feeling that the Israeli government, the current government is doing everything it can to prepare for a potential Biden presidency by creating facts on the ground now that will make a future Palestinian state that much harder. Right. Uh, so in reverse order again, uh, you know, I wouldn't read I wouldn't read too much into the settlement announcements in terms of U.S. politics. Um, obviously, there you know, there's a certain time frame with regard to the election and then the, the lame duck period. Um, but I think it, it has more to do with um, with domestic Israeli politics, especially coming out of the UAP deal when annexation was taken off the table uh, at the Emirati's request. So in Netanyahu's mind, he has to kind of make up for it vis-a-vis uh, -vis the settlers. Uh, who, who some of them were even very critical of the Trump peace plan. Uh, so I think it's more, it has more to do with, um, with domestic-Israeli dynamics and, and Netanyahu's support base. Uh, in terms of facts on the ground, you know, those facts have, have been with us for uh, years, if not decades. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's continuing. And so I don't, I don't think these announcements will, will make or break the, the prospect of a two-state solution. Um, in terms of a Biden presidency, are Israelis preparing? Um, you know, I don't think the average Israeli is, is, is all that concerned. I think they have more pressing concerns, especially economic concerns. Uh, you know, it is being followed closely here. I think a lot of Israelis are, are uh, expecting a Trump victory again, uh, just based on the fact that, uh, that, as we said earlier, the poll numbers uh, don't always translate into, uh, into election morning results. But, uh, but no, I think the political class especially, you know, the right-wing factions in the government are, are concerned. Um, I think they're obviously hoping for a Trump victory uh, and not having to deal with a, with a Biden presidency. But, but like everybody uh, in the world, but especially people here in Israel uh, and then also the Palestinians, I should say, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see what happens uh, on November 3rd. Uh, really, you know, it's uh, less than two weeks away. And then kind of take it, take it from there. Uh, if there is a clear-cut result uh, on November 3rd, uh, and then in terms of the, the, the dichotomy between, you know, Israelis being overwhelmingly supportive of Trump and American Jews being overly uh, supportive of, of Biden and a Democratic nominee, um, you know, that's just uh, the unfortunate fact of life, that, uh, that there are different priorities uh, for both communities. Uh, Israelis, as I like to say, are, are one-issue voters, and it's not uh, Supreme Court justices, it's not uh, LGBTQ rights. Um, you know, it's not the overall tenor of the presidency, uh, it's Israel. That's what Israelis care about. And if a president is viewed as pro-Israel and essentially gives them carte blanche uh, and doesn't hector them too much, then Israelis uh, view him, uh, view him uh, supportively. Uh, and obviously the, the priorities for the American Jewish community are, are very different. Uh, it's not all about Israel, uh, as we know. It's not all about uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, for most American Jews. Um, and so I'm not surprised by by that uh, diversion, uh, but it is saddening. As a follow to that, um, Eric Scheinkopf wonders, given the strong support Trump has in Israel, do you see a growing split between American Jews and Israel? 
Um, look, I mean, it's a, it's a massive question. I think I think that that split is already happening. I think we're we're seeing it. Um, you know, the question to my mind isn't so much between between Israel and American Jews, although it plays into it. Uh, my my uh, my real question and my concern is uh, the relationship between Israel and the Democratic Party. Um, Israel in the past has been a bipartisan issue uh, in Washington that has uh, kind of uh, been tossed out the window, uh, especially after Netanyahu's speech to Congress uh, during Obama's term, uh, arguing against the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, so it's it's a concern, um, you know, if you're if you're a certain type of Israeli government. Uh, but if if you're um, you know if you have different political allegiances, you might see. Uh, uh, a democratic presidency or a democratic controlled Congress um, translating into a different type of U.S. foreign policy, which might actually uh, move Israel to uh, to make certain changes uh, on various policy issues, namely uh, namely the Palestinian issue. Um, and so it depends where, what your perspective is, but but it will be interesting to see uh, again if Biden wins, uh, what what influence the progressive wing in the Democratic Democratic Party has. Uh, primarily on his Israel-Palestine and, and Middle East policy. Dylan Kane asks, is a future a potential, I should say, Biden administration or the Israeli government preparing for a post-Abu Mazen transition in the PA? Will this be a major crisis? And what would U.S. interest be towards its outcome? Um, and also more broadly on the issue of Hamas-PA reconciliation. And let me just tack on to that Charles Kennard was asking, this is not the same question, but it's slightly related. How is Saeb Erekat doing? And if God forbid he would pass, how would that affect Palestine and the conflict? Uh, right. So from my understanding, Saeb Erekat is in hospital uh, in Jerusalem. He's still in critical condition, uh, intubated. Uh, but from the message that the family issued earlier this evening, uh, he's, he's stable. Um, so he's not out of the woods. Uh, by any means, uh, and we can only hope for the best. Uh, what impact that may have uh, in future, um, you know, God forbid, if, if he were to pass. I think, I think it. And this ties into the to the first question. I think it, it primarily has to do with um, uh, internal Palestinian politics. So Saba Arakat is the Secretary General of the PLO. Uh, he's also uh, for years now a, a lead negotiator uh, with Israel. Um, both those issues, peace talks and the PLO, are less relevant than they were in the past. And so whoever replaces him on both files, I think it would be an expression of Abu Mazen's own thinking in terms of succession, who he wants to elevate to those posts, uh, who he wants to solidify, uh, and also vice versa, who, who doesn't get the post. Um, so it's more kind of a, a Kremlinology or a Mukataology uh, exercise and actual uh, policy implications in the immediate term. Uh, you know, a post-Abu Mazen scenario, um, you know, I wrote an uh, uh, Abu Mazen succession article, I think, five years ago. People have been speculating about uh, a post-Abu Mazen uh, Palestinian authority now for, for over a decade. So, uh, you know, he is 84. Uh, nobody lives forever, uh, even Middle Eastern um, leaders, uh, despite their best efforts. So, so I think everyone... Is, is readying themselves for it. Everyone is preparing themselves for it, uh, but nobody, either Israeli analysts and, and officials, uh, Palestinian officials, uh, American officials and analysts, 
have a clear cut answer how it's going to shake out. The prospect of division at the very top of the Palestinian leadership is very real. Uh, and so if anything could destabilize the West Bank, it would be actually Abu Mazen exiting the stage. Uh, it's a concern and, you know, what people, I should say, you know, nobody should try to meddle uh, in that process. I think it'll be a, a solely Palestinian and Fatah movement decision. But uh, but how it shakes out will have reverberations, I think, uh, not only for the Palestinians, but also uh, directly on Israel. Switching gears slightly, uh, Jonathan Kemmel asks, what are the prospects of a unification on the left between the Zionist parties of labor, Meretz with the joint list, or a larger Jewish-Arab joint party like Hadash? Uh, it's a great question. I, I don't believe it's in the cards, although it has been floated in the past. Um, you know, we should say the Labor Party is, is on its way out uh, of Israeli politics. Uh, two out of their three Knesset members entered into the Netanyahu coalition. Uh, I don't think Labor Party has a future. So the Merit Party joining with um, with uh, certain of the Arab parties, it, it's possible, but I, I don't believe it's in the cards. I think Merit still, still uh, uh, describes itself as a Zionist uh, party. And uh, many of the Arab parties uh, in Israeli politics do not. And that's kind of a, a, major, a major division. Um, so I, I, I don't see it in the cards. I'm not entirely convinced either that it will garner mo- more votes. Um, you know, I don't think it'll be a net positive in terms of, of uh, attracting voters. Uh, but I think the real, the real game in any upcoming election will be in the center left uh, with blue and white's potential demise uh, as well as, as we talked about earlier, the center right, uh, these moderate right wing voters uh, potentially fleeing Likud and joining uh, joining the Fali Bennett party. Just one more question sort of related to this, but I think I can anticipate your response. Um, there's a question. Is there any prospect for reconciliation between Kahol Levan and Yeshatid if another election is called by December? Um, it is possible. Uh, and would it be uh, enough, think, by the way? I think it would. I think it would help Lapid. They'd have to find some kind of narrative to explain it to the public. Um, but I think it would only work if Lapid were the clear-cut number one. Uh, in other words, Gantz and Ashkenazi, Dabi Ashkenazi, the foreign minister, um, he's a former IDF chief of staff as well, uh, like Benny Gantz. Uh, only if they really come almost hat in hand and say, uh, "We made a mistake cutting a deal with Netanyahu." Uh, we realize that now uh, we, you know, we tried to do what we thought was best for the country. That didn't work out. Uh, we're going to a new election and we want to kind of um, combine our forces and, and you are the clear cut number one uh, in our candidate for prime minister. I think that would be the only way it would work. But, uh, you know, in Israeli politics, never say never. Um, you know, sworn enemies have, have become ministers uh, in, in the other person's government. Uh, we've seen crazier things than that scenario, uh, but blue and white, uh, we should say, you know, if they do trigger an election, uh, and Benny Gantz even said this uh, last night on on live television, <laughs> it would almost be like a suicide bomber, that they're almost sacrificing themselves and their political future to try to topple Netanyahu at his kind of nadir in the polls. And so if they if they really make that decision, it would it would be a risk for them as well. 
Leora Moriel asks, why is Bibi celebrating a Bahrain embassy in Tel Aviv rather than Jerusalem? And she says, P.S. I love the irony. <laughs> um, I don't think that was Netanyahu's decision to make. Uh, and, and by the way, we should say I don't I don't believe the Bahrainis have have declared that yet. I think it was the Emiratis today who issued, uh, I think, a formal request to open an embassy in Tel Aviv. Um, you know, look, uh, Jerusalem um, is kind of the the utmost wish, but uh, but another Arab uh, embassy in Tel Aviv is nothing to see that either. Misha Kaplovich asks. Um, there was a small quasi-revolt against Netanyahu before the third election last fall when he was challenged by Gidon Saar. As Likud falls in the polls and his actual trial comes closer, what are the prospects for another round of internal Likud challengers? Uh, so that's a great question. It's one of the key things that people are looking at at the moment. Um, so Gidon Saar uh, did mount a challenge to Netanyahu, and Netanyahu... Uh, to his credit, actually uh, beat him convincingly in in the primaries for leadership of, of the Likud. And he kind of used that as a launching point uh, into the third election, uh, in which he did much better, uh, we should say, than the, than the second election uh, last year. Uh, with Likud dropping below 30 seats in the polls, you are seeing certain levels of discontent uh, within Likud. Um, I wouldn't say it's overwhelming, but it's it's interesting to to at least mention. Uh, so Yuli Edelstein, uh, he's the health minister currently, the senior Likud official. Uh, he's taken a very different line than Netanyahu in terms of the pandemic response. Um, he's been a lot more uh, kind of apologetic, humble. He's taken a harder line vis-a-vis uh, -vis the ultra-Orthodox and their violations of the lockdown regulations. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, Israel Katz, the, the, the finance minister, also a senior Likud official, uh, got into a disagreement with Netanyahu over the reopening of small businesses uh, coming out of the lockdown. Uh, that's also interesting. And then uh, Gideon Saar, uh, I think, is, is a good bellwether as well. Uh, after weeks of silence, um, he has been giving interviews again. Uh, I think like like most Likud officials, uh, it's not the, the courage of their convictions. It's the courage of the opinion polling. And if they see a further drop uh, for Likud under Netanyahu's leadership in the polls, uh, then it will become a real thing. Um, it will become a real thing. Uh, and it will be, a, uh, again, another test for Netanyahu uh, in this kind of uh, difficult and critical political moment. We do have a couple of corona questions, so I'm going to ask both of them together. Uh, Melvin Klein notes that today's Haaretz has an article detailing Israeli physicians who believe lockdowns are unjustified. Can you comment? And Daniel Goldschmidt asks... Since approximately 50% of corona cases, uh, since in approximately 50% of corona cases, the Haredim are responsible uh, due to the operation of schools or large funerals, why are they not being stopped by force or fines? Um, well, uh, well, the first question, I don't think I'm qualified uh, to answer that. Uh, I'm not a pandemic specialist. I'm not a, a medical doctor. Uh, there's obviously a major global debate over over the the utility of lockdowns, if not, you know, the overall lethality of, of the of the virus. Um, I'm not going to wade into into those waters. Uh, the second question is, is a good question. Um, so the Haredis, uh, this was true in the first wave, but definitely true in the second wave. They have been uh, the central source of of infections. Uh, they're the red cities. Uh, 
quote unquote red cities were all already cities and towns and neighborhoods. Uh, so this is just the data. Uh, but even anecdotally, you've seen uh, just major flagrant violations, uh, you know, holding weddings uh, during lockdown, uh, synagogues are open. And then obviously most recently, uh, the, uh, the schools here in Israel uh, for kindergarten and above are still closed, except for uh, certain yeshivas and then kind of elementary schools in the Haredi sector. Uh, they unilaterally reopened uh, in violation of, of the restrictions. And the response from the government has been, has been very soft. Uh, you know, they claim there's enforcement, but, uh, but the schools are still open. Uh, they're finding uh, principals for opening schools. Uh, they were promised, they promised a kind of cordon or closure around the red cities. Uh, that was uh, kind of more, um, you know, more on paper than actual reality on the streets. And so, you know, why aren't we seeing a, a greater response? Because uh, Netanyahu is beholden to the Haredi party. Um, so if we talk about a health crisis and an economic crisis and a political crisis, it all kind of ties into to that. Um, Netanyahu, both politically and even some would say legally in terms of his trial, um, needs Haredi support uh, for his current coalition and any future coalition that he, uh, that he may form. And so he can't afford to anger uh, that support base. He can't afford to anger the, the ministers, the Haredi ministers in his government. And so the response has been, has been very soft. Um, and that in turn is drawing a lot of anger from the overall Israeli public, which helps, helps explain why Netanyahu uh, is dropping in the polls. Um, people, people see the soft response to the Haredi violations. They're angered by it. Uh, but Netanyahu is, uh, is kind of beholden to that because um, he doesn't have many allies left uh, in Israeli politics in terms of, you know, potential allies in future. And, uh, you know, I think, I think if the violations continue um, and the Haredis kind of continue uh, unilaterally deciding what they, what they choose to do, um, I think that anger on the part of the wider Israeli public uh, might manifest itself um, even more. You know, if, if the schools continue to be closed and, and stores continue to be closed uh, in Tel Aviv, while Bnei Brak, uh, they reopen, uh, then, then that could be a major issue uh, societally, if not politically here. I can only imagine. Uh, unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. Neri, as always, thank you so much for taking the time, particularly during this difficult moment, to speak with us. Uh, once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. Again, if you've not yet done so, please consider making a contribution at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all once again for joining us today. Once more, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, sign up to receive the weekly upload column in your inbox, and to visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. Please be sure to check out our upcoming webinars with Ami Ayalon tomorrow and UAE Ambassador Lani Nusebe on Thursday. We will be hosting another video briefing next Tuesday, October 27th at the regular time, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Until then, be safe, be well, and Thank you very much.